Must get that fixed. Slow down, he repeated from the passenger seat. There's a sharp turn ahead. She looked at him numbly. I love you, she heard herself say. I know, he replied. He reached for her kindly. His hand settled on the wheel. Sweet, sexy Mandy, you're never going to get over me. She nodded. The dam broke and tears poured down her cheeks. She sobbed hopelessly as the Ford Explorer swerved across the road and a gleam built in his eyes. I'm as good as it gets, he continued relentlessly. Without me, Mandy, you'll be lost. I know, I know. Your own father left you. Now I'm doing the same. The weekend visits will stop, then the phone calls, and then it will just be you, Mandy, all alone night after night after night. She sobbed harder, salt on her cheeks, champagne on her lips. Face it, Mandy, he said gently. You're not good enough to keep a man. You're nothing but a drunk. She tried to shake her head. She ended up nodding hopelessly. Mandy, he whispered. Speed up. One little push of the accelerator and you'll never be lonely again. You'll never have to miss me. Her foot, the approaching curve in the road. Come on, Mandy. Speed up, her foot pressing down. At the last minute, she saw him, a man on the narrow shoulder of the country road, walking his dog, looking startled to see a vehicle at this time of the morning, then even more surprised to have it bearing down on him. Turn, turn, must turn, Amanda Jane Quincy jerked frantically at the wheel, and it remained pointed straight ahead. Her lover still gripped it, and he held it tight. Time suspended. Mandy looked up without comprehension at the face she had grown to love. She saw the seatbelt strapped tight across his strong, broad chest, and she heard him say, Bye-bye, sweet Mandy. When you get to hell, be sure to give your father my regards. The explorer hit the man, thump, bump, a short-circuited cry, the vehicle plowed ahead, and just as she was thinking it would be okay, she was still in one piece. They were still in one piece. The telephone pole reared out of the darkness. Mandy never had time to scream. The explorer hit the thick wooden pole at 35 miles per hour. The front bumper drove down, the back end came up, and her unsecured body vaulted from the driver's seat into the windshield, where the hard metal frame crushed the top of her skull. The passenger had no such problems. The seatbelt caught his chest, pushing him back into his seat even as the front end of the explorer crumbled. He gasped, blinked his eyes, and seconds later, the pressure was gone. The SUV settled in. He was fine. He unfastened his seatbelt with his bare hands. He had done his homework and he wasn't worried about prints. He inspected beautiful, sexy Mandy. She still had a faint pulse, but she was now missing most of the top of her head. Even if her body was putting up a last-ditch fight, her brain would never recover. A year and a half of planning later, he was satisfied. Amanda Jane Quincy had died scared died confused, died heartbroken. He and Pierce Quincy were still not even, the man thought. But it was a start. Fourteen months later, Monday afternoon. Private investigator Lorraine Connor sat hunched over her paper-swamped desk, punched a few more numbers into her old cagey laptop, then scowled at the results shown on the screen. The quicken-generated budget refused to be intimidated. Damn file, she thought. Damn budget, damn heat. Christ, this weather was killing her. It was three in the afternoon on Monday. 
Outside, the sun was shining, the heat about to crest for another record-breaking July day in downtown Portland, Oregon. Rainey's loft offered central air, but as part of her belt-tightening program, she was cooling her vast one-room condo the old-fashioned way. She'd opened the windows and turned on a small desk fan. Unfortunately, that little matter of heat rising was conspiring against her. The eighth-floor condo wasn't magically getting any cooler, while the smog content had increased tenfold. Bad day for belt-tightening programs, especially in Portland's trendy Pearl District, where iced coffee was served on practically every street corner, and all the little cafes prided themselves on their gourmet ice cream. She tried a fresh round of numbers in her Quicken file. Showing a gross lack of imagination, the file spit back the same red results. Rainey sighed. She had just passed the Oregon Board of Investigators' test to receive her license. In the good news department, this meant she could start working for defense lawyers as a defense investigator, a la Paul Drake to their Perry Mason. In the bad news department, the two-year license cost her 700 bucks. A buzzer sounded. Rainey sat up, dragging a hand discouragingly through her hair, while she blinked twice in surprise. She wasn't expecting any clients today. She peered into the family room, where her TV was tuned in to the building's security cameras, and now broadcasted the view from the main entrance. A well-dressed man with salt-and-pepper hair stood patiently outside the locked front doors. As she watched, he buzzed her loft again. Then he glanced up at the camera. Rainy couldn't help herself. She looked at him, the last person she expected to see these days, and everything inside her went topsy-turvy. She ran a hand through her newly shorn hair again. She was still getting used to the look, and the heat made it flip out like a dark, coppery dish mop. Then there was her tank top, old and sweat-soaked, her denim shorts ripped up, frayed, and hardly professional. She was just doing paperwork today, no need to dress up. And, oh God, had she put on deodorant this morning? Because it was really hot in here, and she could no longer tell. Supervisory Special Agent Pierce Quincy remained gazing up at the security camera, and even through the grainy image, she could see the intent look in his deep blue eyes. Rainy's scattered thoughts slowed, her hands settled at the hollow of her throat, and she studied Quincy nearly eight months since she'd last seen him, and six months since even the phone calls had stopped. His eyes still crinkled in the corners, his forehead still carried deep furrowed lines. He had the hard, lean features of a man who spent too much time dealing with death, and damn if she hadn't liked that about him. Same impeccably tailored suit, same hard-to-read face. There was no one quite like Supervisory Special Agent Quincy. He pressed the ringer for a third time. He wasn't going away. Once he made up his mind about something, Quincy rarely let it go. Except her. Rainey shook her head in disgust. She didn't want to think that way. They tried, they'd failed. Shit happened. Whatever Quincy wanted now, she doubted it was personal. She buzzed him in. Eight floors later, he knocked at her front door. She'd had time for deodorant, but nothing in the world could save her hair. She swung open the door, balanced one hand on her denim-clad hip, and said, Hey. Hello, Rainey. I was beginning to worry that you were out on a case, he said. Yeah, well, even the good guys can't be working all the time. Quincy raised a brow. His dry tone made her positively nostalgic as he said, I wouldn't know anything about that. She smiled in spite of herself, then she swung the door open a bit wider and truly let him in. Quincy didn't speak right away. He walked around her loft casually, but Rainey wasn't fooled. She'd blown the majority of her savings on the loft just four months ago, 
and she knew the kind of impression it made. The eleven-foot ceilings of a converted warehouse space, the open sunny layout with nothing but a kitchen counter and eight giant support columns to cave out four simple spaces. Kitchen, bedroom, family room, and study. It's nice, Quincy said finally. Rainey scrutinized his face. He seemed sincere. She grunted a reply. New hairdo? he asked. I cut off the length and sold it to buy the loft, of course. You always were clever. Not organized, as I can tell by looking at the desk. But clever. Why are you here? Quincy paused and smiled grudgingly. I see you still know how to cut to the chase. Supervisory Special Agent Pierce Quincy had started his career as an FBI profiler, back in the days when that division was called the Investigative Support Unit, and he was known as one of the best of the best. Six years ago, after a particularly brutal case, he'd moved to the Behavioral Science Unit, where he focused on researching future homicidal practices and teaching classes at Quantico. Rainey had met him a year ago in her hometown of Bakersville, Oregon, when a mass murderer had ravaged her quaint community and garnered Quincy's attention. As the primary officer, she had walked that crime scene with him, having met him just an hour before, and already impressed by how impassive he could keep his face, even when looking at the chalk outlines of the bodies of little girls. She hadn't had his composure in the beginning. She had earned hers the hard way over the following days of the investigation, when things in her town had gone from bad to worse, and she'd realized just how much she had to fear. Quincy had started as her ally. He'd become her anchor. By the end of the case, there'd been the hint of more. Then Rainey had lost her job with the sheriff's department. Then the DA had charged her with man one for a 14-year-old homicide, and she'd spent four months waiting for her day in court. Eight months ago, without warning or explanation, the charges against her were dropped. It was over. Rainey's lawyer had the impression that someone might have intervened on her behalf, someone with clout. Rainey had never brought it up, but she'd always suspected that person was Quincy. And far from drawing them together, it was one more thing cluttering the space between. Quincy said, I have a job for you. Rainey nearly snorted. What? The Bureau's no longer good enough for you? He hesitated. It's personal. Could I have a glass of water? Rainey furrowed her brow, Quincy with a personal mission. She was hopelessly intrigued. She went into the kitchen, fixed two glasses of water with plenty of ice, then joined him in the family room. Quincy had already taken a seat on her overstuffed blue-striped sofa. The couch was old and threadbare, one of the few remnants of her life in Bakersville. There she'd lived in a tiny ranch-style house with a back deck surrounded by soaring pine trees. No sounds of sirens or late-night partiers, just endless evenings crammed full of memories. Her mother drunk, her mother raising her fist, her mother missing most of her head. Not all of the recent changes in Rainey's life were bad. Quincy took a long sip of water, then he removed his jacket and carefully draped it over the arm of the sofa. His shoulder holster stood out darkly against his white dress shirt. My daughter. We buried Mandy last month. Oh, Quincy, I'm sorry, Rainey responded instinctively, then fisted her hands before she did something awkward such as reaching out to him. She knew the story behind Mandy's automobile accident. Last April, Quincy's 23-year-old daughter had collided head-on with a telephone pole in Virginia, causing permanent brain damage as well as shattering her face. At the hospital, she'd immediately been put on life support, though that had only been intended to sustain her organs long enough to gain permission for harvest. Unfortunately, Quincy's ex-wife, Bethy, had confused life support with life, 
and refused to have the machines turned off. Quincy and Bethy had argued. Finally, Quincy had left the bedside vigil to return to work, a decision that had alienated his ex-wife even more. Bethy finally gave permission, Rainey supplied. Quincy nodded. I didn't think, in my mind, Mandy has been dead for well over a year. I didn't think it would be this hard. She was your daughter. It would be strange if it were easy. Rainey, I want to hire you. Why? I want you to look into my daughter's accident. I want you to make sure that it was an accident. I thought she was drunk, Rainey said, still trying to get her bearings. Drunk, hit a man, a dog, and a telephone pole. End of story. She was drunk. The hospital confirmed that she had a blood alcohol level of twice the legal limit. But it's how she came to be drunk that has me concerned. I met a few of her friends at the funeral, and one of them, Mary Olson, claims that Amanda spent most of the evening at Mary's house, playing cards and drinking Diet Coke. Apparently, Amanda had joined AA six months before her accident and was doing very well. Her friends were very proud of her. In spite of herself, Rainey frowned. Did something happen during the card game? Get her upset? Make her drive straight to a bar? Not according to Mary Olson. And Amanda didn't leave until nearly 2.30 in the morning, after the bars were closed. Rainey chewed her bottom lip. She could have gone to someone else's house after leaving Mary's. It's possible. Mary said Amanda had met a man a few months before. None of Amanda's friends had met him yet, but he was supposedly a very nice man, very supportive. My daughter. Amanda told Mary that she thought she might be in love. But you never met this guy? No. She cocked her head to the side. What about at the funeral? Surely he attended the funeral. He didn't attend the funeral. No one knew his name or how to contact him. Rainey gave Quincy a look. If he's that great, he would have found you by now. Surely Mandy mentioned her father, and given the amount of press you've received on various cases. I've thought of that. But no sign of Mr. Wonderful. No. Rainey finally got it. You don't think this was an accident, do you? You think it's Mr. Wonderful's fault. He got your little girl drunk, then let her drive home. I don't know what he did, Quincy replied quietly. But somehow, Amanda got access to alcohol between 2.30 and 5.30 in the morning, and it cost her her life. I'm asking you to look into it for me. I'm willing to pay your fees. Now, will you take the case or not? Oh, for God's sake, Rainey bolted out of her chair. You know I'll help you, and you know I won't take your damn money.